Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. My name's Cyber Sue and it's my pleasure to be here today on Triple R presenting Radiotherapy. For the next hour on Radiotherapy, we've got a full house here. We've got, um, co- joining me, we've got co-hosts, panel beater, thanks panel beater. We've got Dr. Moto, Dr. Patient and Trainer Wheels. So happy days, we are starting to veer towards normal again. So speaking of things, how are you all? How's the world post-2021? How about you, Trainer Wheels? You've had a big night, you were in ED last night till midnight, back again this afternoon. How's your weekend panning out? Oh, look, it's not how I would choose to spend my weekend, especially it's a beautiful day outside, and it was yesterday too. Um, look, you know what? You heard it here for, here first. Being pregnant, working full-time as a doctor and having a three-year-old, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough to keep you going, isn't it? Yeah. And oh, what about you? What about you, Dr. Stop. Patient? <laughs> Good morning. Look, it feels like we've, just in the past two weeks, we've finally dragged ourselves out from under the proverbial rock and uh, getting back into it. We finally got our, our son uh, fully vaccinated, so, you know, we're as protected as we can be and we just have to get on with it. And so it was a lovely day yesterday. We got out on the bikes, went, went, went travelling, went to the library, got some new books. It was, it was a good day. Yeah. So, uh, when at morning. work. Yeah, and it's good. What about you, Dr. Moto? Oh, I'm really well, thank you, Cyber Sue. Um, things have been very busy, um, but it's just so good to be back in the studio. Um, um, Cyber Sue would know I got in just in the nick of time. I had um, I was on my moto. I had no excuse of um, the traffic being heavy. <laughs> no, I just, you did not. <laughs> I just underestimated how long it took to um, actually get um, through the traffic um, on a normal Sunday morning in lovely Melbourne. Um, but it's so good to be back in the studio. Isn't it great? Well, my weekend's kind of just for pet owners out in the world. You'll kind of understand this. My weekend, I'm feeling a bit vulnerable today, I'll be honest. I've got a 15-year-old Spanador, and she's currently undergoing emergency surgery as we speak. Oh, she's a gorgeous old girl. She's a gorgeous old girl. And she um, she, she took the liberty of eating a um, cooked chicken bone off the street. <laughs> and so it's going to be the most expensive KFC that I've ever had, I think. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, oh. fingers crossed for my little fur dog. Can relate our... Uh, Former cat did the same thing, except it was um, a sharp plastic toy. Mm-hmm. And so I chewed it. And, yeah, so, you know, we're looking at the most expensive animal in the world. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Cyber Sue, I'm sure your pooch will beat the chicken. I know. Luckily, it wasn't a plastic toy. <laughs> I know. Beat I the know. chicken, beat the chicken, beat the chicken. Yeah, roadkill on the front of the bike, right? <laughs> but anyway, today, we're really honoured to be joined uh, by very two very interesting guests today. Um, we've got a bit of a theme, and I guess, re- listeners, brace yourselves a wee bit, because it is a little bit sobering, and it's around disasters, um, disasters abroad and um, here in Australia. Graham Duggan, he's a fellow Kiwi um, and he's a fellow nurse. He's the country health coordinator in the Ukraine. 
um, with the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC. And um, needless to say, um, life's been completely turned upside down for him in the past few weeks. And he's going to share with us, um, coming up, uh, how life is for him currently on the ground in the Ukraine. Following on from that story, um, we'll be talking to a PhD graduate, Dr. Tazarina Chowdhury, and about some important and maybe some surprising findings that she's found in her PhD studies on why Australian and New Zealand women suffer higher rates of domestic violence during natural disasters. But before we get into our guests, let's, get up, let's go on to some medical news. Um, so um, let's start off with um, trainer wheels. I think you've got a bit of a COVID update for us. I do. Can you still hear me okay if I do this? Perfect, Amando. I've got a yep. bit of a technical issue at home today. My computer's <laughs> out of battery and I can't find my charger. So I'm on my phone doing my best. Um, I wanted to give a little COVID update, as is my preference on radiotherapy each month. Um, and I just have kind of been reflecting that in the setting of a few national and world significant events that have been taking place of late... I think the COVID news has been sort of taking a bit of a back seat, understandably so. We're all a bit sick of it. It's been a couple of years and we don't really want to hear about it anymore. Um, but I thought I'd give listeners just a quick update on where we're at at the moment and where we might be heading. Um, in terms of case numbers nationally, nationally, we're sitting sort of around the tens of thousands of cases per day. It's bouncing around a little bit, of course, uh, but it's been around sort of 20, 30, 40,000 cases a day nationwide. Um, Victoria has been pretty steady at around 7,500 cases a day. That's the average for the last week. So those are pretty big numbers, but thankfully, despite those, we're not seeing huge numbers of people in hospital and in ICU as we saw with previous waves. I think that's a testament really to the very good vaccination coverage that we have. Um, we've got 85% of that population over five years old having had two doses of their vaccine and over 60% of um, that same population having had their booster, their third their third shot. And I think um, Dr Moto might be talking a little bit more about this later, but just anecdotally, but this is not necessarily evidence-based, but in my practice, I am seeing that people who've had their third dose tend not to be getting as sick with it. People who've had two doses, some of them are still getting a bit crook. Two doses is certainly better than none, um, but it's looking like three doses is better than two. So I would urge people who are eligible to go out and get their booster shot when they can. It does seem to make a difference. And that's good, isn't it? Because it's about, it's about, okay, we're going to get it. Many people are going to get it, but how do we get through it in the best way? So three shots. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. I guess the biggest ticket item, in, it was probably a week or so ago now, is that the National Cabinet met to talk about COVID policies and, and they're looking, they're moving towards a new strategy of, I guess, COVID normal slash living with COVID, whatever we're calling it, personal responsibility, that whole thing, um, where close contacts, they're recommending that close contacts will no longer need to isolate um, if they're in contact with a, a confirmed COVID case. And they're also moving towards a, a strategy of people with mild symptoms actually not getting PCR testing, just isolating until their symptoms resolve, which um, from what I can tell, though, those policies haven't actually moved down to the state 
healthcare, you know, that the, the um, state health departments, the, the official word in Victoria is still if you're a close contact, you isolate for seven days. If you um, have symptoms, you should get tested, get a PCR test and, and see if it is COVID. But I suppose that's just an interesting move towards kind of living with COVID, COVID normal, as I said before. Um, the other bit of news has been this the, the emergence of this new substrain. We've sort of seen this rumbling along for the last few weeks. It's known as BA2. It's a sublineage of the Omicron variant. We're still learning more about it, obviously, with all things COVID. The evidence is emerging. We're sort of figuring out as we go. It's looking like it could be a little bit more transmissible than the original Omicron variant, but we're not seeing significantly more severe disease so far. We'll kind of keep an eye on that, see how we go. And I think Dr Moto's got a news item on, on BA2, which I'm eager to hear from him a little bit later. I've got more sort of reflections and thoughts, but they're all kind of just my ramblings of a sleep-deprived, um, <laughs> overworked person. <laughs> and I don't think we... I think we've got some other news items that we can move to, time-permitting. So, Cyber, so I'll leave it we to do, you. We do, we do. Well, Dr Moto, why don't you take it on from there with the BA2 um, update that you've got for us? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Cyber Sue, and um, um, thank you, Training, wheel, training Wheels. Um so, you know, obviously this is the um, sub-variant, the BA2 sub-variant is um, the uh, sub-variant of the Omicron variant of the novel coronavirus. And um, there's more than um, one sub-variant, mind you. There's the BA1, which is um, what we had at the end of last year, um, the BA2, which is what's in the news at the moment, and there's also a BA3 as well. Um, and the initial assessments um, conducted by... The um, Denmark State Serum Institute suggests that um, BA2 is probably about 1.5-fold more contagious than um, BA1. So as um, Training Wheel said, um, it's probably more transmissible. Um, but so far, the risk of um, hospitalisation rates seem to be about the same. Um, and um, I, I came across a very interesting correspondence. It was a short study, so therefore a correspondence published in the New England Journal of Medicine four days ago. Um, and um, for the listeners, um, the New England Journal of Medicine is probably the most reputable, the most um, verified and most rigorously peer-reviewed medical journal in the world. Um, and um, um, you and colleagues um, published a uh, correspondence that evaluated antibody response against um, um, the BA2, the BA1, as well as the original March 2020 strain of the coronavirus. Um, and they were um, evaluating um, antibody responses to people who have had the Pfizer um, vaccination and people who have not had um, um, the the, uh, the vaccination, as well as people who um, have recently contracted um, COVID-19 and subsequently um, investigated what their antibody levels were. Um, it, it's a it's a fairly small study. There were only 24 people, so the the sample size is not. Um, particularly large, but the findings were clear and it was important to get this kind of research out sooner rather than later, um, rather than sort of holding on to, um, you know, holding out and trying to recruit more and more um, participants. So what they found was um, that the, um, the, the BA1 and BA2 subvariants of um, the Omicron 
variant um, seem to uh, be less um, protected by the, the Pfizer vaccine. But if you have had two doses and you've also had a booster, um, i.e. your third vaccine dose, um, that antibody your antibody levels, i.e. your um, degree of protection, actually increases, increases quite significantly. Um, so um, one of the conclusions formed was that um, to get maximal immunity against um, BA1 and BA2, um, having three dose, being triple jabbed is a very, very good idea. Um, and the other interesting um, uh, result that they found was that uh, if you have had uh, COVID um, uh, infection, um, it does seem to be quite protective against the BA1 and the BA2 um, subvariants. So the um, short version of the longer story is that um, it is a, a, what seems like a transmiss much more transmissible variant. Um, people don't think, seem to get as sick with it um, as the original coronavirus, um, and the um, vaccine um, is protective, particularly if you have been triple jabbed. So that's the, that's the kind of the take home, isn't it? Is just keep getting all the get all the boosters, keep getting the boosters, and even though it's not so nasty, you kind of more people get it. So keep. Oops, I keep, um, yeah. Yeah, keep what's particularly it. interesting yeah. was, you know, they sort of presented this diagrammatically and after the first couple of doses, the immunity against BA1 and 2 weren't as impressive as you'd hoped. Um, but after your third jab, it actually increases a lot. Hmm. So we don't know what's happened there, yeah. but, you know, this is all happening in um, real people. And this is, again, a very reputable research team out of Harvard University published in probably the most high-impact mm. factor mm. medical journal in the world. So, so continued, continuing learning on the job, basically. Absolutely. Yes, uh, really exactly. good news. Exactly. Well, that's great news. And, um, Dr. Patient, you've got a bit of a non-COVID update for us, which is a little bit refreshing. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, Look, again, as the patient... I, I sort of wanted to throw this story out to the Brains Trust here. I, uh, I was consulting on my usual suspects of, of looking for articles this week, but the one that sort of piqued my interest a bit, and this is, uh, let the puns commence, <laughs> two people have just had their symptoms of bipolar severely reduced in a new report released this week by getting faecal transplants. Oh, yes, I've heard of this. So the report is called Faecal Microbiota Transplantation for Bipolar Disorder. Now, I jumped on this straight away, and so I'm just very interested. Uh, like, uh, if, if the gut bacteria itself, I, I don't want to get into all the, yeah. the, <laughs> the details, but, I mean, if the gut bacteria itself can actually be changed to the point where you can completely eradicate the symptoms of mania and depression, where you can actually stop intrusive thoughts, where you can reduce... Uh, the idea of visual hallucinations, this is all jumping down a, a rabbit hole here. But, I mean, is it really as simple as just getting your shit sorted? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so the, the actual report was released uh, last week and it was studying two Australians and both of them had bipolar disorder and they spent over amount of, uh, a certain amount of time getting these, uh, getting these faecal transplants done. And the... They said that the results were absolutely astounding. They were. They felt completely clear in their head. They felt completely normal. My question is, what? How does this transfer to brain and mood activity? I mean, from what you guys know, I don't know 
if you are specialist in the area, but how does this work? Uh, it's a great question, Dr. Patient. I don't know how much time we have to go to that today, whether we should park yeah. that for next week, cause, for next month, because that's definitely an interesting question. And I'm cautious about putting our, fellow, our psychiatrists on the spot today. I'm wondering, are you, we might head on to a, a, a bit of a song. We've got a few, we've got eight announcements to get through today. So sure. um, if it's okay with you, well, let's, bring, let's bring that back next month, Dr. Patient. Yeah. Yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, due to time zones, Dr. Moto and I did this next uh, interview a day or two ago um, with our guest, Graham Duggan in the Ukraine. So we're going to play that to you now, that interview. In June 1992, a magnitude 7.3 earthquake struck Southern California and it ruptured five different faults. It was in the immediate aftershocks of that earthquake that Graham and I first met back in 1992 and we were on our way to do our NCLEX American nursing exams in New York. So Dr. Moto and I are online with Graham now. And um, Graham, I should remind you that as our high-rise apartment shook through the night from those aftershocks, you actually slept right through all of that. <laughs> so for our, for our listeners, I'll reintroduce you. Um, Graham is a fellow Kiwi and he's a fellow nurse. Um, he's had a hugely diverse working career, including with ICRC, the International Commission of the Red Cross, since 2014. And for the past five years, as the country health coordinator in Ukraine. So, Graham, we're really, truly honoured and um, grateful for you to join us today on um, Triple R Radiotherapy. It's great to be here, Susan. I'm really wrapped to be able to uh, talk to you and your listeners about um, uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Thank you so much, Graham, for making yourself available to do this. I know that um, you know things must be extremely busy. Um, where you are, um, you're part of the world at the moment. And um, thank you for sparing the time for us Melbourne listeners. You know, our thoughts and our hearts are all with um, you and the um, people suffering in the Ukraine. But we're also very, very keen to hear how things are on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And Graham, I just want to kick off. I want to kind of get the elevator pitch from you. What actually is your role as a country health coordinator? You know, let's say in relative times of peace, like three weeks ago, what's your job? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a quite a diverse role. Um, I, I, I mean, my particular role now is to manage international committees of the Red, Red Cross um, uh, uh, health um, plans in Ukraine. Uh, two or three, what, three weeks ago, time sort of melds into one these days, but it's about three before the conflict. We were mostly based in eastern Ukraine. And as your listeners may know, there was a, there's a division between what's called, what was then referred to as non-government controlled areas and government controlled areas. And we basically supported um, the ICRC, basically covered um, providing health care to those people impacted by that particular conflict. And I'm the, one, I'm the person who had to devise that policy, to implement that policy, uh, and to ensure that it's effective policy, the effective uh, operation. So things like uh, we had, we, we effectively work on about four central structures, which is um, support to uh, hospitals, 
um, and I can go into detail a little bit more later about that. Support to primary healthcare facilities, and especially the elderly and the um, those with a few voices uh, who desperately need and will need and well did need and will continue to need not non uh, non communicable disease medication. So medication for your heart diseases, ischemic heart disease, your cord, asthmas, all these things need regular medication. So we we did that. Um, we we also worked on some pre-hospital work of like first aid training in communities. Um, and we were building our very our brand new first of its kind emergency department. Uh, in uh, Ukraine. It might sound weird to your West, uh, listeners about emergency departments, but Ukraine has a different medical system and I could probably go on to a little bit more, but that's basically, and so I'm the guy who basically pulls them all together and uh, puts it to the management, uh, ensures that we have adequate budget and most important, implements it. And as an NGO, we have the opposite to profit-based companies. We need to spend and we need to spend right up to preferably 100 to 102% of our money. And any money we're saving, we're not doing our job. Well, mm -hmm. I'm not doing my job. And so that's basically what I'm here to do. And uh, and then in previous roles, I was doing a little bit more field-based work. And uh, and in this particular role, it's more uh, headquarter-based, but I do get out to the field as often as I can. Yeah. And so, Graham, three weeks ago, things suddenly took a big turn. Um, how did that suddenly change in your role with the ICRC in Kiev? Uh, changes everything. I mean, it's uh, we've gone from a very localised reach, uh, what they call oblast-level conflict, um, where we had a, a number of really promising programmes. Um, we had just started one for a combined effort to um, bring all our departments together to work with uh, persons with diabetes type 2. Uh, and so we had, a, it was an interdepartmental approach where we, instead of working in silos, we were wanting to work with water and habitation. So let's take one diabetic. They need uh, access to their house. They might have a disability. We will get, we'll get them to help access we have they need a proper diet for to ensure they control their diabetes so access to food uh, good quality food and vegetables um, they need um, prosthesis for their feet perhaps so we work with our um, rehabilitation department we have our um, psych, uh, psychosocial um, mhpss we were working with them about um, compliance medication compliance lifestyle compliance so we had this beautiful um, uh, new program which was very, really showing promising results and so that was what we were doing <laughs> three weeks ago and that's what we were going to do all this year really build on that and then bang literally and figuratively it's it's everything's changed now we're just about support um, and helping those impacted by conflict um, Graham, did, um, did the people see this coming? Um, and also as um, someone like yourself working um, in a NGO with some government affiliation and intel, did you hear whispers of something like this happening? What was it like? No one, and including us, including many in the international community, could, and most important, the people, really didn't believe that something of this scale would come no matter how much the Americans were clearly uh, indicating this. 
they were very clear. They were very open with what was happening. Um, and no one could fathom that another Slavic country um, with so many ties between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, we're talking about multiple family linkages between two countries. We're talking Australia, New Zealand here. This is the sort of uh, comparison you can make, a small, large country. Um, no one would ever have thought that a brother nation like, uh, and with so many cultural links, um, the Russian, uh, Ukrainian nations, and so all of culture. And so no one really, that's the sense is that no one could quite believe that they would do this. Even the government didn't really prepare because they were balancing off um, fear versus reality. And they really didn't want to cause a lot of foreign currency to leave. And the second, sorry, the second part of that, we don't really have access to any uh, secret intelligence or any any secret information as such. We just list, we we listen out. We get uh, reports from other organisations. Um, yeah, everyone was in disbelief. We are in disbelief, and we now have to respond. And of course, Graham, how are you? Are you okay? And how how is your family? Um, your friends in, in New Zealand and elsewhere around the world must be worried sick about you. But firstly, how, how are you? How are you holding up? Um, no, no, um, it's good. It's, uh, I'm, I'm pretty resilient. Um, I, I've been in through a few different war zones in my past. Um, I think I was more terrified in Papua New Guinea in a way. Well, not I wouldn't use the word terrified, but more worried about my personal security in Papua New Guinea than, than I am here. Um, and Afghanistan, the same thing. It's It was a really safe society outside of bombs going off around you. Um, same applies with Ukraine. It's a very safe city. Uh, Kiev is one of the safest cities, um, if it wasn't for shells and, and explosions now. But uh, in terms of my family, yeah, they I, I do lots of reports to them. They, they of course, naturally worried. My son and uh, my son is back in uh, Belgrade. Um, I hope to see him soon. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you have to really balance this type of lifestyle uh, with the knowledge that there's always going to be losses on other other parts of one's personal life. Absolutely, Graham. And um, there's there's compromises that you make in one way or another. To me, it kind of strikes me that that difference between when you knowingly went into places like Afghanistan and PNG, where you kind of knew what you were getting into, whereas here you were towards the end of your tenure in, in Ukraine and it was, I guess, comparative peace in particular in Kiev when you were based. And how has that been different for you Um uh, you you know having that sudden change has that been a different experience for you at a personal level? Absolutely. I mean, I was about when it started. I was about ninety, <clears throat> excuse me, ninety days away from ending my mission in Ukraine, and um, it's extremely sad. I mean, of course, six years you you build up a, a degree of um, linkage to the country. Even though I'm independent, we work. I work for a country company, the organization that is independent. But you are human. Everyone's human, and they're going to have linkages. I I see Kiev, and I see the people, and they are very friendly people. And um, to to think about now what they're going through. Um, that the children in the basements. Um, I just saw an article this morning, which really uh, a few emotions are really light on my surface, on the, underneath the surface. But having her five, fifty-year-old, five-year-old birthday in a basement, and her cake has to be um, an orange with a candle in it because she can't go out. 
and for me that's really very very sad and it's it shouldn't be happening um and that's i guess the the the, the essence is i'm just a i'm a health guy i just want to uh, help as many people as i can but no matter how much we help if people are still willing to cause violence on others there'll be more people that this, that that the need will never stop um children will still be killed and i think that's really the, the terrible thing about this this doesn't need to be happening there's there was no need for this and and now many we've just had our colleagues come out of mariupol after being in a basement with 50 odd people for two weeks children locked up in there in really terrible conditions and they finally managed to find safety but there's tens of thousands still locked in their basements in mariupol and uh, that's what's the most distressing part of it is is that 10 15 days ago these people were just going about their daily lives mm. children were playing in playgrounds um going to school and that's the devastating aspect of this whole messy terrible um and unnecessary war mm, i you know we we can just hear so so clearly that uh the rawness of that emotion and what it's playing on you and you you're witnessing it firsthand which is a world apart to us kind of sitting on this side of the world. Um, it's Sunday morning. It's the 20th of March, um, 2022, and we're here on R. Um, you're with Cyber Sue and Dr. Moto on radiotherapy. And we're speaking with Graham Duggan. He's my long-term and a very dear friend, and he's the ICRC Country Health Coordinator for the Ukraine. Um, so thanks again, Graham, for being with us. Um, Graham, you know, you talked before about what your health priorities were before in the country and you know some progressive and great ideas um and then you've talked about some of the hardship that you're seeing at a very personal level right now um what are in such an unpredictable and such a volatile environment right now what are the immediate health priorities for you right now in this situation it's a really good question and it's something that we have to make a lot of really difficult questions uh, difficult um, decisions um but our main priority is to get war wounded um kits which we have um, pre-packaged in geneva and we call them ww war wounded kits they've got for 50 war wounded people um for x number of days and uh, these kits are massive and when we talk 50 but really it's more 100 150 people because of course not all patients are going to get the same use the same items so we have a lot of these kits and so we have to distribute these kits to the hospitals that are in most need but this is where the decision process comes in there's a lot of areas we can't get into Mm -hmm. So up in Kharkiv, uh, where there's been a lot of fighting, down in Mariupol, these areas desperately need what we need, we have, but it's extremely difficult to get in. We would we just don't have we're not uh, we don't have a military behind us. We have no way of getting uh, getting through except what you'll see on the picture to this this interview is is a, a symbol. We 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 rely on our symbol, which is neutrality. And uh, we need to get these kits into the hospitals. We need to get, uh, and the second thing is primary health care um, support. So it's not a desperate need now because, of course, there was resilience in the country in terms of supplies. But in the next month or so, if this keeps going on, 
there's going to be a terrible need for non-communicable disease medication. There will be a lot of elderly who will die effectively, prematurely, because they cannot get their um, antihypertensive medication, their cord medication, asthma medication. Insulin is also another really big, big problem here. Um, that is about 200,000 insulin-dependent persons in the country, approximately. These people need access to injectable insulin. And uh, this is something that we are um, ordering. We're going to have to try and distribute. There's desperate need for it already. Um, been successful in some respects. but um, And then we've got MHPSS. We have a, a, a very substantial MHPSS, uh, which is mental health and psychosocial support um, the, uh, section of health. And they've set up a massive um, uh, complex uh, network of psychologists that, that Ukrainians can contact to receive some degree of counselling through what they're going through. Um, of course, you, you come from a health background, Graham, and um, you speak to the crucial need for medications and healthcare supplies. But what about just some of the basic needs you also alluded to, like, like shelter and housing? But, um, you know, we hear on the news that, um, you know, water and food are also in very short supply. Um, um, you know, obviously perishable food, but even non-perishable food, like are there actually, you know, canned biscuits and, you know, tins of baked beans and these kinds of sustainables to go around? Yeah, so basically on health, we have um, multiple departments of ICRC. So we have what's called an ECOSEC department, and they purely do exactly what you're saying, economic security and food security. And so we're bringing in massive amounts of both um, in terms of, like you say, per non-perishables, um, mechanisms to get a certain amount of food to the most vulnerable populations. Again, there's resiliency in the country. There's still parts of the country is operating. They do... Uh, supply a lot of food for themselves but there are certain sections in the community the vulnerable community that uh, the elderly who need to get that food and support and we also have a water and habitation section that deals we spend a lot of our um, budget on re-establishing water connections um, so that people can have water um, and also habitation being we provide support to uh, temporary accommodation, temporary, um, to, for example, if an apartment building was held, uh, uh, we would have canvases to, to provide, to, to keep the elements out, uh, and also more uh, long-term support once the fighting uh, is decreased. Graeme, you mentioned before that, um, you know, going on that, that note of following the laws of war, allowing passage of people and, and vital supplies, on the ground, how do you actually getting the stuff out to the people? We basically, it's, again, we rely on our um, extensive network of, first of all, symbolism, um, our, our cross and our, um, uh, when they see us, they know that we are neutral, independent and impartial. Um, also do a very strong network of notifications. So when we do something, we notify all parties that we're going to do it. We're going to go down this road at this time. Please do not um, shell this road at this time. Um, please ensure that your troops on the ground know that we're coming through there. Do you have any uh, mines or anything that could cause us damage on these roads? Um, 
politely, could you please remove them so we can get through? Um, these are the sort of things we, we only can ask. We can only notify. We have no mechanisms of forcing our will. Um, we simply are there for humanity. And that's because both sides have something to gain from allowing us to be there um, because we are neutral. So we help on both sides. And um, Graham, um, still on the theme of um, our thoughts being with the people in Ukraine at the moment, how is morale on the ground? How are the, the people holding up? And I know that's a very difficult question because um, different people will be um, experiencing this in very different ways. But what's the general sense and the general vibe that you get from the people who are really doing it tough? Um, it's a really good question. I think it's, the. I guess one word could is incredible, or two words, incredible resiliency, mm. incredible incredible wow. um, ability to um, face the adversity. Um, have wonderful stories where you've got a city um, down in the, in the south which is surrounded with um, uh, troops and they're still opening their chemists. It's like literally shelled one day. They put the canvas up and they'll open the doors. They're going about trying to go about a normal life um, and that really shows you how how um, there is a real sense in this country that this is our moment in history. We want to own our our country. We don't want to be a puppet. We don't want to be uh, controlled by others. So, but at a more personal level, it's it's really difficult. It's really hard. I mean, I've talked about my staff, um, and they're really they've scattered across. The country. Some are in Europe as refugees now. One is in southern France. I mean, we've got. Um, a, I, I still have one staff member who's in Kiev with her grandma and her children and her um, uh, her, her fa um, father, uh, husband, and she's got fighting all around her. And she still co gets. She goes from the shelter, comes back to work, gets online, and helps out as much as he can. And then she has a siren and has to go back to the shelter. Mm. That tells you about what they're willing to do for their country. Mm. It's, mm. it's extremely, it's, it's really powerful. It's really mm. a powerful message of, of hope um, that this will just stop and, and Ukrainians can go about um, developing their life, developing their country and, and growing their families. And mm. we just all hope that this is just, will end soon thank you so much for sharing um the moving and, and very powerful um stories and um triumphs of the human spirit that you just did over the last 20 minutes thank you so much we really appreciate you putting this time aside for us today so thank you thanks so much guys appreciate it thank you bye-bye Thank you, listeners. Well, that was New Zealand and Melbourne nurse Graham Duggan, ICRC Country Health Coordinator in the Ukraine, and he was sharing some very personal and um, moving stories from the field. Um, so thank you again, Graham, and I hope you're recovering well from what transpired to be COVID at the time of that interview. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I'd now like to welcome our next guest, which is Dr. Uh, Tazarina Chowdhury. Um, still on the subject of disasters, I'm sorry listeners, um, but this is closer to home. Now, um, as part of her um, PhD, 
uh, Tasmina did some really interesting delving into some important differences to the way men and women may experience disasters. And um, her research covers, among others, the 2014 tsunami, Hurricane Katrina, New Zealand earthquakes, and there's really some interesting surprises for me. So, Tazrina, welcome to the show. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Now, um, Tazrina, you... Um, we, we've got maybe 10 minutes with you right now, and I noticed that in your study um, there was a real global acknowledgement of the central role of women in disaster management. And um, But there was also a concern that uh, women remain disadvantaged in the way they prepare, survive and recover from disasters. So can you kind of talk us a little bit about the way that women are disadvantaged in the disaster setting? Yeah, so... Um it's actually my, my it's the, the one you're talking about is part of my research, my PhD research. So when I was doing my literature review, it was very, inter I was actually looking at um, Bangladesh's women's experiences, given that the gender equity index is quite low in Bangladesh. But when I was doing the literature from a global perspective, it was very interesting for me to know that it's not only people or women from uh, lower gender equity index countries, but also women who are from, from the, you know, so-called developed countries or the countries who say they achieve the gender equity uh, or they have higher gender equity index. Women from those parts of the world are also um, uh, uh, experiencing, exper uh, experiencing negative experiences or being negatively impacted during disasters. So, that was that was kind of a reality check, uh, given that uh, women's uh, how women are instantly disadvantaged uh, whenever there is a disaster, and this is because mostly because of the you know the fem expectation from the society of women's feminine attitudes they or the feminine responsibilities they have to do during a disaster. Women are the ones who are actually expected to take care of the children or to the uh, older people of their family members. Uh, they are the primary carers. Um, they're the ones who need to respond during, uh, respond to, you know, to uh, save their houses, households, their belongings, etc. So this put women into a disadvantaged situation because they feel overwhelmed, they feel helpless because they have to juggle with multiple responsibilities, not only to save themselves or save their lives, but also to, to save or to take responsibilities of every other people of their families. So even though uh, it's, it should be a responsibility of everyone, like may, both men and women, but still there is this uh, global um, perception of being a woman that drive women to take these responsibilities during disasters and which make women more uh, vulnerable during disasters and after disasters as well. And what were those kind of adverse outcomes that you found in your study, Tazrina? Um, so for example, the most common I found was during disasters or just after the disasters, uh, domestic violence, sexual assaults from partners, um, sociocultural um, uh, responsibilities that that impacted women's uh, mental well-being because they felt that they were not able to um, uh, they were not able uh, uh, able to fulfill all the expectations or all the things they are supposed to do. 
So yes, I think um, uh, what most common things were domestic violence, sexual assaults, um, mental well-being, and also financial instability. Because during disasters, women are the ones who lose their jobs or who has to uh, leave their job because they have to take uh, they have to take their family first or keep their family first. Tazrina, thank you so much for sharing your research. How fascinating! Um, I can imagine there will be quite a lot of um, social, political, cultural variations in um, some of this phenomena being played out. Um, how did you go about um, controlling for these variables and um, um, you know, what, what are some of the patterns that you saw after um, controlling for them? Yeah, so basically when I was looking at from a global perspective, uh, I saw that there, there, as you said, uh, there were different kinds of variables, social, cultural, political, financial backgrounds, etc. Um, and I saw that, uh, you know, women, irrespective of their social cultural settings or where they come from, women are more likely to, uh, to be, uh, to experience domestic violence and sexual assault all over the world. I mean, you know, if you look at the underdeveloping or developed underdeveloped countries or developing countries, you will see that there are different kinds of um, other issues. Uh, for example, losing their jobs, um, um, health, different kinds of health well-being or mental health well-being issues. But domestic violence is more common all over the world, including, you know, post-hurricane situation in USA, bushfire, um, uh, 2009 bushfire in Australia, women were the ones who has been violated domestically. Tazrina, it's training wheels here. I also just wanted to echo what Moto was saying, that this is really fascinating and important work you're doing. And I think, you know, as society becomes more aware and concerned by issues such as gender violence <clears throat> it's so important to have work like yours that kind of fleshes out the nuance there that you know this is a really complex social issue with lots of um interplaying factors and and things like it becoming worse following a disaster is not something that i would have thought about before so you know thank you for your dedication and work in this area it's very important I wondered if your um if your work either in your phd or, or elsewhere if you've kind of I suppose, thought of um, strategies for governments to kind of mitigate this risk. If, this risk. If, we, if we know that natural disasters are inevitable and we know that following disasters there's this pattern where women experience worsening gender inequality in terms of, of violence and, and lots of other factors that you've discussed, what can governments do to mitigate that risk? Yeah, thank you so much. That's, that's a very... Great. That's a great question. So as you said, uh, we often, when there is a disaster, we often think about a lot of issues because there are a lot of issues, recovery, rehabilitation, etc. Um, we think about these things, but often women's uh, experience of domestic violence is uh, often sidelined. Although it's it's a very it's an issue for women, and you know it can have lifelong trauma for a woman, but it has not been properly addressed. So that's that's why 
I think my work can make a small contribution, even though it's small, I'll be so happy. Uh, so I, what I felt like in Australia, at least there, there is a consensus, um, you know, to meet the challenge and they, uh, I think Australian government has this consensus uh, that women face this kind of um, experience uh, post disaster or during disasters. But I think to mitigate this more research, uh, you know, regarding the interventions, what is the proper way to intervene is required. Uh, so basically, first of all, I think most more research women based or disaster women in the same nexus, this kind of research is needed. Also, uh, during the you know the emergency management policy, there there are uh, in Australia at least there are uh, policies and strategies to include women in the disaster uh, you know so that they are not sidelined. There are strategies to include women uh, 50 50 or half take half of the uh, women who work in disaster. But still, I think uh, you know there there is a lacking about women in the community where actually women get uh, violated. So I think this needs to be, uh, uh, this needs to be think, uh, have a think that how women in the community can be included in the policies and strategies or how then they can be informed that this, this is a situation, they're not the only ones who are suffering because I think often it's very common that women who suffer from domestic violence, they think there is something wrong with them or it's just them, but it's, it's actually pretty common. Globally, women have this kind of experience. So yeah, I think um, this kind of, uh, you know, reaching out to the community women can actually bring um, bring a change, a, a proper positive change, yeah. And that's that's such a good point. I mean, bring in the people that we need to make the change for and help to be part of the solution. We've got about a minute and a half left. Um, Dr. Patient, I think you've got a, a, a final question for Tazrina. Tazrina, as a, good morning. As a as a father of a young child, let's let's look at the generational change. What can we do to re-educate the behaviour with children? You know, especially boys with growing up. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm also a mother of a young child, two years, and she's a girl. And I actually understand your uh, concern. And uh, I think what we need to do is make this practice at home that, you know, men and women are equal and you cannot treat uh, your wife or your partner, anyone in front of your kid in a in a in a in a conventional way. It always has to be equal. I mean, I make sure that me and my husband, my, my, my child always see us similarly. We do all the household chores together and take care of our babies together. We work together. So, you know, she will grow up with that thing that it's, it's not feminine responsibility to take care of the children or take care of the house. So I think that's all we can do. I mean, have a, a better practice at home so that they learn this and they carry out this, uh, you know, this behavior when they are grown ups. I think that's the best that, that's the best approach we can do to secure gender equity. The equality really starts in the home, doesn't it? Exactly. Thanks, Tazarina. Thank, thank you, Tazarina, and thank you, thank you so much for being on um, on Radiotherapy today. It's been great to talk to you. Um, take, great to talk with uh, Graham Duggan earlier. And for those, if anyone missed the show today, you can catch up via the podcast, kindly put together by Max. It's available from Monday on the Triple R website. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. It was my first radiotherapy show so um, I hope it was okay um, thank you to our wonderful co-panels for helping to hold it together Dr Patient um, Dr Moto Training Wheels and um, Panel Beta
Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.